Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and objectionable. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Todd Fredericks of uh, Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I'm joined with um, with Sarah Atkins, uh, professor of pharmacy, uh, Dr. Sarah Atkins, and, of course, Nigel Alsop, who has been with us now for two segments on um, the Australian War Animal Memorial Organization and his work and just remembering uh, four-legged, four-legged and two-legged, I mean, the <laughs> pigeons, right, the, the two pigeons, um, animals that go to war with us and what they do and some amazing stories and so this segment the third segment nigel hi how are you doing i'm sorry i, I just want to thank you good to be back he, he's back <laughs> so and just so you guys know i haven't done any rotations now for many months and so yeah. i'm out of my groove but i'm finally back to where we can get this stuff done and the production is going to go up again and it's going to be great this is still awesome stuff so yeah. um nigel we're going to talk about We've, we've talked about some notable mascots and war animals in history and their contributions. We've talked about your background, of course, and the history, a little bit of history about animals going to war. Now, I think it's important we talk about what happens to these animals mm -hmm. after the conflict. So the question I had to lead off with was, can these dogs, can canines specifically, can the horses, uh, we don't have too many war horses anymore, but mm -hmm. can they come home? I mean, what happens to these animals once we're done using them? in conflict it's a good a very good question um and, and it does have a, a a better ending now but traditionally say if we start off with world war one um no animals were returned uh, to australia or uh, america um or new zealand for that matter most of the commonwealth countries um and the reason for that is usually um associated with quarantine but i can't help feeling just like perhaps today's politicians with something to do with uh, money mm -hmm. and expenditure of bringing them home. Um, in Australia, we, we sent 136,000 uh, whaler horses, um, official breed uh, of horse, um, which by the way, we, we supplied to the Americans in World War II uh, mm. to a unit called Merrill's Marauders in, in Burma and uh, Marauders, I should say. I believe there was a, a movie made of it. Mm. And anyway, the, um, the horses... Um, only one ever returned as a token gesture, um, PR exercise, we'd call it nowadays. But we had to, to leave all the animals uh, there. In fact, in Australia um, and America, until the American public got behind it, at the end of the Vietnam War, so we're not talking now 100 years ago, um, Australia had to leave all its tracker dogs uh, that fought in Vietnam uh, on, on the enemy shores because we couldn't uh, bring them back home through quarantine. And in actual fact, um, a large number of American uh, uh, tracker dogs uh, were going to be left behind. Some were even euthanized as a prior um, sort of pre-deployment until the public got behind it and then forced uh, the government to repatriate uh, the dogs uh, in particular. So no, not many animals at all ever came back uh, until quite modern times. Uh, now places like Lackland Air Force Base and here in Australia... Uh, we have um, veterinary facilities, quarantine facilities, that allow our dogs, once they've done their tour of duty, to return. Uh, one of the campaigns that uh, AWAMO had here in Australia was, and, and 
I've got to be honest, I'm not too sure if this is similar to America. But we were also complaining that a soldier goes over for a tour of duty for a year and then comes back home again. Um, the dogs were being kept in situ in Afghanistan and Iraq for five or six years at a time, mm. um, doing several tours of duty with several handlers. And uh, a predominant doctor uh, in the United States uh, in Lackland Air Force Base identified uh, PTSD not, as we always associate it, with perhaps the soldiers, but PTSD in canines. They were identifying the same symptoms. Dogs literally coming home and, and, and you know jumping through their skin if, if a car backfired down the road and, and, or a firework went off in the neighbourhood, something like that. So um, that's only recent discovery. Um, so yes, we, we do bring our animals home now, but we have to make sure uh, we um, you know, bring them home in good condition. Uh, the second point of that is we discussed earlier two types of animals, combative animals and mascots. And I think, uh, uh, Todd, you alluded to uh, many soldiers in America, and, and I've seen the articles too. There's a, a, a great company in America that tries to bring back all the dogs and the cats that soldiers have um, sort of adopted in situ, trying to get them back to America. And there was a, a battle that they had um, uh, at one stage, the, the Air Force not allowing them to fly back on on aircraft or government-owned aircraft. So they had to raise funds to bring them back on, on civil airlines uh, because it's a huge trauma. Um, these um, A lot of these soldiers, they have a, a mascot or a, a pet dog um, or worse still, a combative dog that you've, you've literally um, shared a, a foxhole with. And um, uh, there's two things about having a dog in a foxhole. Um, there's no atheist in a foxhole, from my experience, <laughs> and you tell a dog things you wouldn't tell your wife. Um, <laughs> and uh, the um, and there's a great camaraderie um, uh, sort of uh, built between these animals, and to leave them alone is is uh, behind is, is devastating. But um, uh, and but uh, more more than that, perhaps um, it can affect the human beings uh, in Australia. Part of you know, the human uh, recovery uh, is people are, are suffering from PTSD because they they have left their comrade behind, um, and uh, we we even see it sadly uh, on, now that we've been back and had PTSD dogs for a number of years. When those PTSD dogs pass away, mm-hmm. uh, they're causing drama and in some cases suicide uh, suicide um, to soldiers. Yeah. Those dogs die again. So, Nigel, I think I think people would have a better understanding of this. Everybody knows the story of the the pet that will cross hundreds, if not thousands, of miles when they get separated from their family to find their family. Canines are pack animals, and they are used to socialization among their pack. Dogs in the wild hunt as a group. They live as a group. They have a social structure as a group. And so if you can imagine your pack constantly changing and what the impact of that is on you from, say, like the rotation of handlers, Mm -hmm. it is a profound effect. It doesn't surprise me at all, and that's why I want to know about PTS in animals and are we inducing it because I don't think it's a very humane thing to do to animals that don't ask us much. And one other colorful description I need to give people is I, on my second trip to Iraq, I was stuck in the airport for a while, and a dog handler came through. Mm -hmm. 
and I didn't really fully appreciate that relationship. The, the dog, he had a Belgian Malinois. This was a combat dog, and it was designed to track and yeah. to help him take down people that were that were bad. But the Malinois was sleeping next to him in the airport on the floor, and next to him he had, if you can imagine, a pallet, like a typical pallet with a kennel, with food with medication i mean it is an it's a pretty large support package that that handler not only had to not only his own personal kit and his weapons and everything else that he had to take but all the support equipment for the dog and i watched that handler wake up i was in the airport for six hours and this and i was just kind of camped out on the other side of the terminal i watched him every half hour to hour would wake back up Look at his dog, make sure the dog didn't need to go relieve himself or didn't need some water. It is a very close relationship mm-hmm. a, a military dog handler has with that canine. And and you can imagine what the trauma is of that dog suddenly having a new human and not having any familiarity. Mm. It's terrible. And I, I mean, I don't mean to be overly dramatic about this, but it is very much the same, I think, in my mind, or it must be for the dog. When a soldier's wounded in combat, the first thing they think of is, I don't want to leave. Mm-hmm. There's issues of, I can't complete the mission. I'm letting my friends down. I'm alone. All the people I've come to depend upon are nowhere near me. I'm in an unfamiliar place, like a hospital that's scary. The same thing, I think, probably affects these animals. If you Correct me if I'm wrong, Nigel, and I think we really need to take a closer yeah. look at how we deal with this. And the last thing I'll say, and I'm speaking purely as a civilian and a citizen at this point, if we can spend $120 million on a single jet fighter, mm-hmm. you would think we could fund uh, adequately a, a, a program that would look after working canines and manage them in a, in a way that is respectful of their contributions. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's just... Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we have a similar saying that, um, you know, you, you can fire one Maverick missile, which is about $80,000, um, uh, and that would uh, look after... Um, you know, 100 military working dogs retirement uh, um, just firing one missile and they fire about one a week and catch them, you know. Um, so the, the money that we, we need to spend on military working dogs is peanuts and compared to other things, um, you know. Um, you know, a bunch of generals probably spend more going out for a uh, formal function mm-hmm. uh, at Washington than they spend on, uh, would need to spend on the dogs themselves to get it right. Well, and and not only that, but a properly maintained and immunized dog that's checked, we have plenty of time leaving. I mean, we spent, I spent myself two weeks in Kuwait waiting to come home. I think, Nigel, correct me if I'm wrong, but a typical canine quarantine is about a month. Yeah, it depends. Uh, Back here in Australia, um, it's about um, um, six weeks or so. I mean, it used to be up to four or five months um, of isolation, but now because by the time they've come back, um, in some cases, they've gone via Germany or the United Kingdom before they come back here, or what? our dogs anyway. So, yeah. What, what does and, a quarantine? What does a quarantine look like for the dogs? What does that? What yeah, happens? Well, it's just a, yeah, it's just a kennel, really. You know, um, okay. um, you know, a, 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 it's by nature, by very nature, as you can imagine, it's predominantly concrete. Okay. You know, there's no couches and TVs there. Um, <laughs> it's pretty basic. Uh, so no germs. Um, and it's an observation. It's a it's a vessel to observe the dog to make sure it doesn't have diseases like rabies um, okay. or any other disease that may affect uh, agricultural products okay. or livestock. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it seems to me, I mean, I watched massive forward operating bases get constructed, and we could make concrete. That's one thing Americans can do. We can <laughs> figure out how to make concrete anywhere in the world. There's no reason, in my estimation, that those facilities can't be anticipated, quarantine facilities, especially when you out-process out of Kuwait, and you know you have animals. You say, look, our process will just be, you go through Kuwait, and you sit in Kuwait for a month, the animal will be quarantined, yeah. and it's just what, it's just the part of doing business. And and it, yeah. it, it's more respectful, it's more humane. Maine, and it, it it shows a certain um, a certain diligence and honor in society to to put that kind of investment. And again, as Nigel pointed out, we fire one Maverick missile. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of coin to take care of these animals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know, to start with the animals, um, we call our dogs you know fifty thousand dollar dogs in, in the police because you know they're an asset um, that's worth about that much if you take into consideration you know the. 13 to 14 weeks they're trained, takes to train them, they're selected, they're bred, um, they, they, the, the assets that they're worth to detecting, say, explosives, um, we call them a $50,000 asset. So, you know, they're, they're something that, uh, it's not a disposable item. And one of the problems uh, in many armed forces, the UK, Australia, and, and I believe until recent times America, but Ron will be able to uh, correct me if I'm incorrect, but they're still classified as a stores object, uh, not a member of the armed forces. Mm. So that piece of equipment, um, uh, as opposed to uh, a living, uh, you know, creature. It certainly is wasteful in my mind. But I do have a yeah. question, though. So, Nigel, are, are, are military dogs suitable for adoption back into the United States? Now, what I'm thinking of, and I, and I want you to expound upon this, is certainly combat dogs, attack dogs, dogs that are designed to go after a target, namely a person, and take them down. I could see why there might be some issues with those animals that have been specifically trained to do that kind of work, that that might be difficult to to put them in with a family. But explosive ordnance yeah. dogs, therapy dogs, all these other dogs that are not typically in more violent aspects of combat, are there difficulties in placing these animals is it just there's not enough desire for these animals or we just don't have the mechanism to put them in homes or have a home, an adoptive home? Or I'm also thinking of the handler that may have a 20-year career. Well, he's going to outlast two or three dogs if he's a canine handler yeah. in his career. So how does that work? What, what does that look like ideally, a system that would help those animals? Because And maybe also talk about what the working life is of one of these dogs. I mean, how long do they actually yeah. work for? Okay, well, on average, a dog is recruited, and this is an average, you know, recruited if it's not bred internally at, at kennel. Um, a lot of dogs are recruited around about the, you know, 15 to 18 month mark, um, and they're trained, and, and they can usually you know, keep going till they're 10 uh, on average, uh, depending on, on the stress of the of where they've been, what they've done, and what role they've performed. So, you know, the Defence Department can get, you know, seven to eight years at military um, working life out of a dog um, and at that stage uh, you know the dog say is 10 years of age in human terms some people would regard that as about 77 in dog years mm-hmm. um, so it, it's well deserved its retirement um, now to answer your first question a lot of um, attack dogs and police dogs if you like to um, you know um, are usually um, retained by their handlers um, and so they're usually perfectly fine uh, if they're with their handler there may be some issues and problems uh, if you're giving it to a complete stranger. Um, and in the past, it, it is a fact that, that some dogs have had to have been euthanized because they were just, um, perhaps, shall I say, 
uh, you know, too vicious to, to give to, uh, you know, public society. Um, but nine times out of ten, hopefully the handler will adopt that dog. Mm-hmm. And I think the way to help that is to give an allowance to the to the handler to able to care and maintain his dog, mm-hmm. as you said, because he then may, at home, because he may have a second dog, a younger one, if he's doing a career as a dog handler. Um, he may have um, three or four dogs. In, in, in my military and police um, uh, sort of term, uh, you know, over 27 years or so as a dog handler, I've, I've had, um, I think, about 14 dogs. Um, and, um, you know, some have lasted longer than others. Um, uh, they haven't all, you know, lasted their entire life, as you can imagine, um, um, by those sums. Um, you know, um, some have been killed on duty and some have been um, retired early due to medical conditions or whatever so I was only averaging an age of 10 but um, you know I, I I in this country and I know many American soldiers and airmen marines etc have uh, taken a dog on and they, they keep it at their own expense and they, they have to pay for it so the dog is, is retired um, it's still that way in most armed forces and most police forces around America uh, around the world it's, it's nothing special to America, so to speak. Well, Nigel, so a dog, a dog's lifespan, roughly, I've seen as long as 17, which I think is rare, but usually yeah, between yeah. 12 and 15 About years. 15, yeah, yeah, I was going to say average is the 14, a good, good age. Uh, I so, have a, uh, a retired police dog at my feet now, um, <laughs> asleep <laughs> and, and 13 and a half, um, and, and my current working dog, um, who's running around, uh, like a fool outside is is, um, is about five. Yeah. So, so, um, so Nigel, you know, what is the what is the retirement the, the average retirement cost when you factor in veterinary care, food, um, just the general maintenance of one of these animals? Because if they retire at ten, the military's comping for the comp, for covering them at ten, and we're not talking about a mascot now. We're not talking about a pet. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about a trained asset for that. Let's it, say. It would- it would be on average a couple of thousand dollars a year, uh, which is not much really. Um, and um, the unfortunate about making a guess like that, and it is a guess for this reason, um, just like human beings, when we're 77 and retire, that's when all the medical bills, doesn't it? You know, mm-hmm, come right. you, don't need to, you don't seem to need to vet when you're 20. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, as soon as you reach 50, um, you know... Um, uh, Plus, you know, the doctor starts, um, you know, walking around behind you instead of looking at you in the face, and um, our medical bill goes up from there. And it's true. It's good. And it's the same with the dog. At the very ironic age that they retire is when more medical, they're likely to get right. more medical requirements. Uh, a big expense um, with older dogs uh, seems to be dental, actually. Um, mm. You know, um, teeth uh, problems, you know, rotten teeth and all that, depending on what diet they've had through their career, you know. Um, and um, so, yeah, um, my old girl, Touchwood, is going very well and, and, and has very, or has no medication, is on no medication at all. But um, it's a difficult thing to put your finger on because, you know, you've got to think of now them, if you use them as humans as comparison, they're all pensioners now. And so, yes, you are likely to get medical problems, hip dysplasia, blindness, deafness, um, things like that will all start creeping in about 12, 13, 14. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think people in the United States, of course, we, we have a different healthcare system for people than a lot of other countries. But what I don't think people understand is that veterinary MRIs aren't anywhere near close to what it costs to get a human MRI because there's there's not the yeah. same types of restrictions that raise costs so dramatically for people, but yet they're the same MRI. So if I go to the Ohio State University Veterinary School, which is the largest one in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, it's the only veterinary school in Ohio, I think, mm-hmm. um, they have MRIs and they have CT scanners and they're the same CT scanners and MRIs that we use in human hospitals, but because they're being used for an animal population, the costs are dramatically lower to deliver those services. So if you can yeah. find a way to to keep the cost contained and look at it, it, it it's we he said, well, gosh, you know, the veteran, there's a question about the Veterans Administration or Veterans Affairs for Military Working Dogs. We're not talking about the equivalent costs because veterinary costs are traditionally for pharmaceuticals, for everything else, are much lower than human beings. And as long yeah. as you don't get the sort of effects of third party where people start raising prices untransparently, mm-hmm. the relative yeah. cost of doing an MRI on a dog or a CT scan on a dog isn't that much. Like you can get one for a couple hundred yeah. bucks usually. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about that, it, it begs the question, why don't we have a division of the Department of Veterans Affairs looking at service animals and saying, or military working animals and saying, look, you know, for what we've got, these animals will be cared for and they'll look at it. And like I say, again, $125 million or $121 million is a lot of bank to be able to fund the care of these animals, you know? I do have one other question though, uh, Nigel, that that you've prompted me in. Can an attack dog, can a dog designed to go after people be untrained? Like, so if you Mm -hmm. have this dog that worked for and I know that the demands are harder on them, so maybe they don't have as long a working life. Seven or eight, they're going to retire maybe because I've watched them work, and it is really physical, and they get hurt. And yeah. what I'm thinking of is can that dog be rehabilitated or turned off? Is it possible to do that where you take the dog and realize you're not in combat, this isn't yeah, your job anymore? It's certainly, yeah, it certainly is possible, and um, like everything else, it's, um, I'd hate to put 100% um, yes on it because there are some – um, a percentage that might not be able to um, uh, due to the, the nature of what they've experienced as well um, and the trauma that they've um, sort of been through I I, um, I, I uh, for example had a dog that I guess had a phobia with it, it was, must have been before I had it, must have had an experience with a, a man with a beard and it was perfectly placid as soon as someone walked around the corner um, you know, it would uh, leap out and try and attack them um, uh, as long as they had a beard, you know, wow. Christmas was a terrible period for me. But um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the, uh, but but the uh, so you know, and and he had a phobia that that you know uh, he would go off right until the day he died, basically. Um, wow. So yes, to, the, to answer your question, yes, it, it is possible, and yes, um, uh, there are uh, ways of doing it, and and in fact, um. The armed forces do try and do that uh, as best they can, and and um, the, I believe they're, they're very successful in it. But it's not a hundred percent thing. The, you couldn't say every single dog. It's like saying, you know, can you rehabilitate every uh, every you know criminal in prison? No, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's understood. And, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking if there's uh, a way to maybe to, to look and think about how to salvage some of these animals and give them a reasonable expectation of a peaceful life where they can live out their life basically under the foot of a, of a expat New Zealander and, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and have a nice retirement and, and, and just, you know, 
look after them and let them have a, a restful, peaceful life. I don't. Maybe that's a little too uh, pie in the sky. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, look, it, it is possible, and, and uh, um, like I say, it depends. Um, the the great thing that we have um, uh, in the police compared to the armed forces or many armed forces is the um, a lot of armed forces dogs um, are kept in kennels. Um, you know, when you they, the guys knock off work, literally. Um, um, and um, but here in Australia, um, our police dogs, at least, they come home with us every night. Mm. So my my um, a gen, you know, a general duties police dog, which would bite just as hard as any military dog, um, you know, also comes home and sits by the TV and and um, children jump on it um, uh, because as a as a prerequisite, which is something that perhaps could be considered. Uh, um, you know, it's not fine this guy. Um, you have to be married to be a dog handler. Um, and so, um, you know, the dog is, then can come home and it, it, the police supply a kennel and, and all the food at home uh, while it's in service. And so it, it has that um, family surrounding. We, we seem to have gone away from what we used to call land sharks, which was the seething mass of 42 teeth in the back of a car uh, ready to bite anything. We mm. seem to sort of evolved. Um, into a more intelligent dog, dare I say, without sounding anthropomorphic, but it's uh, you know a thinking dog which is better behaved and and better controlled as well. So then, um, it, it's, and will bite on command, and it won't if it's not told to. It, well, it sounds like the dog has a switch. It knows when it's mm-hmm. at home, and it knows it's not working. Yeah, yeah. And it can just uh, be a dog. Like um, um, the um, when I'm, for example, my dog will sit in my patrol car quite happily, I put the lights and sirens on, it knows it's going somewhere, and it starts bouncing on the wall, you know. It's time to work. It's time to go to work. Yeah, that's right. And its tail starts to wag, and it, 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 you could say it's smiling. Oh, <laughs> that's good. Um, because that's its job. But um, they do. They can be switched on and off, and uh, in, in this case, it, it's something physical, um, you know. Um, uh, search dogs, for example, don't continuously smell everything uh, every five minutes. Uh, you put a harness on them and give them the right command, the heads will go down and they'll start searching. Uh, but when you take the harness off, um, they, they can relax a bit, mm. you know. So, yeah, all these things can be done. They can all be achieved, you know. Mm. Um, and um, I think it's one thing I learned with training exotic animals, you know. Um, uh, you know, as a... <laughs> As an elephant trainer was asked to make make an elephant lie down um, so the vet could inspect it. And I'm thinking to myself, well, with a dog, you know, I'd, I'd put a collar around it and give it a good yank and, and down it went. And, I, you know, it took me a long time to figure out how to get an elephant to lay down on the farm. So, but there's, there's ways of, um, of, um, of doing everything, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and training, you know, uh, people that, uh, sometimes look at SeaWorld and bats. One of the animals that we haven't talked about is the uh, large amount of uh, marine mammals that are used um, in some defence forces, of course, for rescue work, such as um, sea lions and dolphins, which are, are quite controversial, as as you can imagine. Um, the, um, you know, um, uh, people will see some uh, a, comp- uh, a company that uh, perhaps um, they may misinterpret uh, 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 we'll just say a sea lion jumping out uh, of the water and laying on a 
a particular marker as craft entertainment. But in actual fact, there's a reason that they usually are trained to do that. It's not for entertainment. That's a, a benefit which you use as a conservation educational tool. The reason you need to get a sea lion to jump out the water is vets don't swim very well, and you need to be able to look at the um, sea lion on dry land. And, it, and that marker that it's standing on is usually replaced by a set of scales. So now we can get look do a visual inspection of the animal and check its weight mm. and things like that. Um, you know, you may see in some uh, marine parks, you know, uh, a sea lion, for example, raises its uh, flipper as though it's waving to the audience. In actual fact, that's how we teach it to, it's the softest part or has the most, uh, the fin has, has the most blood vessels. And that's where we take blood samples from, oh. make sure it's healthy and okay. So there's a, usually a reason for everything. Um, so the sea, so basically the sea lion when it's waving at you is thinking he's going to the doctor. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's time to go to the doctor. I hate this. I've lost all magical things now with the, sea lions. I'm like, I know. Hi, Next time no, you go to SeaWorld, you just no. won't see it the same way. <laughs> I'm not going to see it not the same yeah. way. <laughs> all, all, all I'm saying is, is, is a lot of it is for a good reason. It's yeah. not crass entertainment, you know. Right. It's, um, it's obviously, and that's a whole, you know, nest of, that we don't need to get into, you know, uh, whether or not those types of parks should exist or not or whatever. But, you know, the edu- that they are, uh, you know, trying to educate uh, people in conservation. And obviously you have to look after your asset, which is the animal. And they have mm-hmm. to be treated, you know, and uh, by veterinarians to make sure that they're, they're healthy. Um, you know, by, by maintaining healthy stock means you can have it there for decades and you don't need to introduce any other animals from the wild into captivity you know you lower that uh, which uh, is something again which is very controversial yeah so nigel so protecting so that's a good segue too to the mm-hmm. last questions about protecting and helping these animals nigel you've got several books and i would encourage anybody to look up nigel alsop that's a-l-l-s-o-p-p uh, several books he's written. Um, by the way, which is your favorite book you've written that people should really think about? The one that most reflects your your passion for the field you work in. Oh, I, I, well, I, I, I suppose um, my, the book Smokey um, was one of the first books I wrote, and and um, it, the, the the story touched me and um, uh, very much, and, and it was just uh, meant to be. Um, I um, I sort of uh, just sort of fell into the story, so to speak. I wrote a book called Canine Cop, uh, which is, I think, a TV series now in America. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I, I wrote the, the the book Canine Cops, and it's been adapted, um, uh, you know, uh, and um, uh, it sort of shows the behind the scenes of, um, of you know, what how police dogs are trained, why they're trained, what they do, what it takes to be a handler, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, and um, because, you know, uh, police dogs, like police horses, um, you know, uh, uh, literally at the tip of the spear of, of law enforcement. I mean, they're one of the major um, uh, sort of assets you have for non-lethal force. Uh, I mean, um, they save, strangely enough, many criminal lives by the fact that they've bitten somebody and taken them down. And the officer hasn't needed to shoot that armed offender. Mm-hmm. So they actually save lives, uh, ironically enough, although the prison, the the criminal at the time being bitten probably wouldn't appreciate that. They probably are an amazing non-lethal uh, use of force option for the police. And of course, you know, um, 
um, I, I nearly got, I nearly got sacked once by, um, I was about to do a, a bomb disposal job with my dog, and I had somebody, um, whisper in my ear, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, good on you, constable, you, you know, I'm, I'm right behind you. And, uh, of course, you know, there is no one in front of my dog's nose when you're looking for a bomb. Nobody. Everyone else is evacuated. And I, I turned around and said, um, sarcastically, yeah, you're about 100 miles behind me in an office. And uh, then I realised there was a commissioner of police that was talking to me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Nigel, so, so for people who are interested, can you give us now, I've mentioned a few organisations, places where people can go to maybe offer support if they want to buy purple poppies, if they want to learn more about war dogs and service dogs. Give us some organizations in the United States and yes. the UK. Yeah, in the United States, um, uh, certainly Susan Bahari, who we've mentioned before and you'll speak to. Uh, Susan um, has bought the purple poppy. Um, we gave, you know, basically uh, gave her the go-ahead and, and all the backing we can to introduce it into the United States. Um, and she's uh, raising funds for this magnificent memorial, hopefully going in to San Francisco. Um, by the time she's finished, it'll be like about the four to five million dollar mark, and then we'll have a bronze animal representation of all the most famous American animals. It'll have um, a dolphin on there, it'll have a war horse, it'll have a service dog, a police dog, um, uh, it'll have PTSD uh, dogs. Um, it'll have donkeys and mules and, and pigeons as well, all part of the overall um, tribute to war animals. And, and um, she's always looking for sponsors at the moment and uh, try and do it. Um, she's a great artist, but she can't do it financially on her own. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, by the, buying a purple poppy from her will um, greatly increase um, the, the time that it'll take to build this beautiful memorial. Uh, another person, Ron Ronaldo, who's uh, the president of the U.S. Uh, War Dog Association, he's a Vietnam veteran and a handler himself uh, and an expert in this field. And as I said, Ron's done some fantastic work um, uh, in in trying to get Obama to pass uh, initially the bill to uh, to support uh, veteran dogs. But his organisation uh, supports veteran dogs himself, and he does a fantastic job. Uh, John, John Burnham who built the National uh, Canine Monument in Washington. Again, a highly decorated uh, veteran dog handler. Um, and John, again, has been instrumental in basically putting uh, war dog memorials in the United States. Um, two very great organizations, which, um, uh, or three, I should say, that, that support each other as well. Each, uh, Susan and Ron and, and John all know each other. Uh, John's visited me here in Australia. And, uh, uh, and and I obviously visited Susan in America. So, mm. but they are, are three great uh, organisations straight away that um, you can look up. Okay. Are there organisations that allow people to look into adopting uh, retired service and or uh, working animals? Uh, I'm specifically thinking about retired uh, retiring police canines that can't be kept by their handlers or or military working dogs that you know of, Nigel. With, with military working dogs, the best uh, people to contact would be um, uh, U.S. Air Force at uh, Lackland Air Force Base. They have a, a Facebook and a, and a, and a site on uh, Google, which um, is about uh, adoptions as well. Um, and uh, they're one of, of, um, 
that that the government uh, level to to go to, and certainly uh, Ron and John would would know of private companies that um, that that help um, uh, canine adoption as well afterwards, and and there are um, there there are many sort of um, uh, like I said, I've, I've, I've introduced you to to Jeff uh, from Norco, who, who operates um, um, a uh, an assistant dog program, and um, uh, I can give you his details later. I just don't have uh, his email address in front of me this time, but web page at this time. But um, again, he does some fantastic work with um, training PDSD dogs up for for veterans. You've got to remember as well that not just I, I know we predominantly based on on um, on canine, but there's a large uh, group of people that do equine mm-hmm. therapy for PTSD in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Australia, we support um, a company called um, uh, Mates for Mates, which uh, do equine. In fact, my charity sponsors um, uh, several horses for that, and we do PTSD and assistance dogs through a company called Young Diggers in Australia. And... Um, there are similar organisations in America uh, that do equine again um, using Norco as a as a, um, as a uh, sort of a, a template. Um, mm-hmm. They have several there. Uh, one of the things that um, I, I brought back from America, uh, in actual fact, to Australia, is a amputee saddle. Uh, a lot of people forget that um, how Veterans Affairs, or one of the ways that uh, Veterans Affairs hospitals train amputees is to ride a horse mm-hmm. because the body motion of the hips um, is the same as when you, you try and walk and put on an artificial leg, the same hip motion um, that you've experienced or your brain has experienced through riding is the same movement. Um, now, in, in there's private companies in Norco that do that. There's also the United States Army um, that uh, your push on horses that are sadly normally seen uh, bringing coffins back uh, to deceased soldiers in Arlington. At Arlington, they also run uh, an equine uh, program for the veterans uh, who have lost their limbs. The same horses um, just don't carry um, coffins. Um, they actually do a working man's job as well to rehabilitate veterans, so they do a great job. Yeah, what what, um, what Nigel's referring to is the old guard at Fort Myer, the 3rd Infantry Regiment, uh, which if you've not been to Arlington National Cemetery, if you go, you will most likely see horses. Mm-hmm. And you've certainly probably seen them on, um, you know, a miss, missing rider uh, with the boots turned backwards on any funeral yeah. procession. But this, if you go to Fort Myer, they have large stables there. They have animals there all the time. You see horses there all the time. Uh, it's actually, they're quite beautiful, actually, um, and they're meticulously maintained. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool to know that they're running a therapy program as well and not just using their horses for ceremonial, pers- mm-hmm. uh, ceremonial, you know, hauling caissons or that kind of thing, that they're actually using them for um, for therapy, too. That's pretty yeah. cool to, to know about, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. i tell you an interesting, before we finish, and Sarah, I want to make sure you get a chance to ask any questions. Uh, Nigel, this has been a great conversation. Um, this is a, a population that I've learned as someone who cares about veterans. One thing we haven't considered is I've now known uh, three people who worked at Arlington that have post-traumatic stress that never went to combat. And the reason why they have post-traumatic stress is because they were assigned to human remains details where they were going to, to uh, Dover, recovering human remains, uh, taking them for internment at Arlington or other national cemeteries, 
and their only view of war was of death. Mm. And they, yeah. they, and I'm not sure where the army is right now. I haven't talked to any of my friends there about actually doing counseling with these soldiers. But these are young people. They're 18, 19 years old. And I, I know for a fact that I think combat is actually protective against PTS in many cases. Yes, it, it induces it, but there's certain elements of combat that allow you to put into per- perspective death and life. Mm-hmm. For young people that all they deal with is death, you can imagine, and I don't want to get into a big argument, they're saying it's something we need to look at is these people who are challenged with just looking after the dead, mm-hmm. that making sure that they have support. Because oftentimes you think, well, why would you have PTS? You didn't go to Iraq or Afghanistan or but they may have PTS because of unresolved trauma issues dealing with the results of those conflicts. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting. We think about Arlington, we think about service animals, we think about therapy equines, and we think about the young men and women who are charged with laying to rest people who've died in combat, the impact of war on them as well. It's a big yeah. job. Well, and one last comment about that. When I was at the Argonne Muse, I didn't realize this, but some of the first uh, black soldier units before full integration of the U.S. Army were charged with re- with disinterring uh, field expedient cemeteries of, of other Americans and reinterring those bodies after identification in formal U.S. cemeteries. I'm sure the French uh, and the British also had programs like that because people were just buried expediently on the battlefield, and then they went back and formed these yeah. cemeteries. And the impact on those men and men that were doing that work, I just it had to be profound because mm-hmm. all they did all day long was dig up horribly wounded and, and damaged people in various states of decomposition, identify them, and properly lay them to rest. And we owe those units a, a large debt of gratitude for that service that I don't know that they've ever been fully recognized for. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would just be horrific work. I, mm-hmm. I, there's some fascinating pictures at the cemetery reception area that if anybody ever goes to northwest or northeastern France, you should go to the cemetery of the Argonne Muse and go through that display because it will show you the after effects of, of combat and just... It, 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 I, I'm almost speechless thinking about it. So a lot of interesting, yeah. com, heavy com, heavy thoughts on this thing. But just, again, well, equine yeah, therapy. Think, yeah, yeah look, look, one comment I'd have um, to, to support that um, theory 100% um, is actually a proven theory. Um, uh, 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 I, I would ask you perhaps um, to, to Google this at a later time. Um, uh, in actual fact, I, I believe that um, more law enforcement, uh, emergency service workers, uh, such as fire and particularly paramedics, suffer from PTSD than members of the armed forces. I can I can see that, Nigel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can imagine policemen and, and emergency service workers having to uh, go to a what we say called the SIDS death, you know, um, child death, um, mm-hmm. traffic accidents, maiming on, on the road. Uh, shooting, um, they're, they're actually statistically uh, in peacetime more PTSD suicides with emergency services than there are in the armed forces. Yeah, it, it's something that needs needs continued so in, investigation and research to care for these populations that are doing all this work for us, especially emergency services. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sarah, we're, we're at our end with Nigel, at least to this, this, to this, for this day, because Nigel has to go to bed. It's like 11 <laughs> o'clock his time, and we have to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, and what do you think? Any, any, any thoughts for Nigel? 
Oh, I appreciate all the stories. I actually really enjoyed listening today. I'm usually quite the talker, but I I didn't want to interrupt the stories. I felt they were important, and I appreciate the grace and kindness of um, the animals and their stories. They're amazing, and everyone who's served um, the education I've had today has been fantastic. So I apologize for not asking more questions and being quiet today, but I enjoyed drinking my coffee and listening to some amazing stories about some amazing animals. Yeah, and we're going to do more. We got it was Ni- fantastic. Through Nigel, largely, we've got a tr- tremendous number of people to talk to about different aspects of of animals and their relationship with people. And then, of course, Dogs of War, which we hope to introduce in a year or so, which should look specifically at service animals and their relationship with veterans and why it's important and what these animals contribute to people after they've been through service. Not just, and hopefully that's reflective of also service animals for people who are civilians and mm. don't ever go to combat, but be benefit because of the research we do and the yeah. the understanding we have of these relationships. So I think it's really encouraging. And it's actually, a one, they're wonderful stories. They're just really heartwarming. Yep. You look at your pet and you realize that their cousins especially trained and and properly handled can do just incredible things and stuff that just is mind-blowing so nigel i'll let you have the last word anything we've missed anything you want to leave people with before we close out no and and like i said it's sort of all creatures great and small for a start i mean um we we sort of focus primarily obviously on on uh on equines and and canines but you know look even in world war one they used to put slugs um, for example, um, on the front of the trenches, because a, a slug skin was um, very susceptible to gas attack, and when the slugs start to um, detect gas, it would start to curl up, and uh-huh. gave the, the uh, soldiers enough time to put their masks on. So we've uh, used and abused animals, um, you know, in many a form. I mean, even um, even fireflies were put in into little glass jars and and, and shaken. And, and used uh, to write diaries at night time. Oh. I, I guess one of the most interesting um, mascots I ever read about was from an American mascot, an American doughboy um, from Missouri, I, I think he was, actually took his goldfish to World War One in a jar and sort of throughout the trenches and he brought his goldfish home again. Wow. <laughs> a war goldfish. I've well, not had that much luck with fish, goldfish, no. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel, that is so inspiring. I'm so glad you ended with the war goldfish because that, that this, some of this has been pretty heavy. It's been a long segment. I want to thank Nigel Alsop of the Australian War Animal Memorial Organization, and I want to thank Sarah Atkins today for joining us. Thank you for I want to thank, thank you, Nigel. It was a pleasure meeting you today. Thank you. Yeah, and hopefully we might catch up. Like I said, I, I promised Bill. And next year, I'm going to come up to Ohio and see him. So amazing um, because obviously he is getting getting on, and so I want to see him. Um, and um, uh, so yeah, hopefully we might all catch up sometime myself. Nigel, if you if you come to the United States and tell me where you're at, I will find a way to get to you. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it, well, definitely. Be- I said I'm coming to Norco. Hopefully next uh, the end of um, May, uh, just before June, um, and. Um, we're opening up the Allied War Horse Memorial in, in that town, Norco, again. And um, Susan is helping me with it. And um, the uh, uh, that's going to be for all the American horses um, that um, have served in World War One and the Allies. It's just a silhouette of a horse. Um, but the significance of it is the same silhouette, the same pattern, 
is uh, we've got one in Australia, one in France, one in India, uh, one in Belgium, one in Africa, and one in New Zealand so far. And so each, and they're all identical. Um, and so um, that's the significance of that. And um, we're, we're um, yeah, because as I said, uh, New Zealand, uh, uh, more of Australia, I should say, they've got a close connection with uh, American horses and American troops because uh, in World War Two, the, the Texas National Guard were deployed to guard uh, New Caledonia in the Pacific and uh, they had to do patrol with horses and so Australia sent 1,100 horses to the U.S. National Guard, uh, a particular breed of horse called a whaler. Um, they then went with the National Texas National Guard um, to uh, to Burma, uh, where the National Guard turned into a famous World War II unit called Merrill's Marauders. Mm-hmm. And they then they, they were used alongside mules as pack animals um, throughout the war. So Australian war horses and Americans uh, have a very uh, close relationship in actual fact. Well, Nigel, perhaps we can continue that conversation uh, in Norco. I'd like to hear more about that. I, I appreciate it. Nigel, have a good evening. Thank you. And you. Thank you. Yeah, take good care. Good night. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> Look at that. Well, okay, so what did you think? It was amazing. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, I, I love the fact the stories that... stories are just outstanding. I'm telling you, there are. The, the, I don't read much fiction. So the, the other day... This whole excitement about my 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 friend Dr. Jamrose, who yeah. loves Star Wars and pop culture, he's very excited about the Star Wars movie coming out, and I, I I'm excited about the Star Wars movie coming out. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is nonfiction. Mm-hmm. There are amazing stories all around us of people that yep. we never hear about, and that's just one of them, right? It's I mean, amazing. a goldfish that goes to war in World War One and makes it all the way through <laughs> World War One in the trenches. Who 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 knew, who knew that, right? I mean, that's an entire story of itself. Like you took your goldfish to war. And I so, can't even make a goldfish last at my house. I can't imagine traveling the world with it. Yeah, I mean, how many times have you bought the goldfish and three days later it's <laughs> know, you know doing the inverted it. float? And, I feel terrible. I know, and I, he made it through I, World he War One. World War One. I don't know. I it's know. Amazing. Isn't that crazy? And these were amazing stories. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining me this morning. It's hard You're to find welcome. students who are reliable. You know, so, they don't have anything else to do, and yet they never show up, right? So, <laughs> but. Um, Look, I enjoyed I loved listening this morning. It was amazing. It was a great way to start the day. I thought so, too. Mm-hmm. So, guys, this segment ran long. It's like going to be about 45, 50 minutes, and I just appreciate your patience. Again, uh, thank you for joining us on Rotations. Uh, we should have more frequent content now that um, I have some bandwidth and space to do this stuff, and I think you'll be interested to hear the next people we talk to over the next year as we get ready to look at Dogs of War. So thank you for joining us on Rotations, and I hope you have a great day. Take care. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the Media in Medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks and Brian Plough, hosted by Sarah Adkins, and edited by Todd Fredericks and Brian Plough. 
Our producer at large is Nisar Bakshi. Rotations is periodically co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediainmedicine.com slash rotations. Then we get your boss in here when she's ready to go, then we can get going. Where's she been? How about you give us a slowdown? What is this? This is an interview with the phlegmatic pharmacist. <laughs> the phlegmatic pharmacist. So you know where we're going to head with this. This is for the Rotations podcast. And uh, because I, I just need something to break up the monotony. Mm. Got a lot of monotonous stuff right now. What is the Rotations podcast? Oh, I'm glad you asked. The Rotations podcast is my podcast with Brian Plow, uh, founded by myself, Plow, and Nisarg Bakshi and OMS4 a couple of years ago to look at anything that concerns science, medicine, art. Ooh. And it's on iTunes and SoundCloud. And I'm editing an episode right – well, it's, I just pulled it down. I'm editing, editing an episode right now with Nigel Alsop president of the Australian War Animals Memorial Association talking about the relationship of service, well, not service animals, war, working animals and people. Hmm. Yeah. What's it? Because we're doing a film right now on service dogs, and so we need to do some education about what is a service dog and what isn't. And working mm. dogs are not service dogs. Working dogs are working dogs. They They detect bombs. They... They go after bad people, they do all sorts of things, but they do not, they're not service dogs.